So change is coming and you can see many industries in transition. And I think one way to think about investing in impact where an industry or a company for that matter may be in transition is that impact investors can be accelerants, right? They can accelerate change that is already underway. And so I do think it's very important for impact investors to uh, look at where there are opportunities for impact turnaround. Hi there, and welcome to the new season of Macro, Micro, Michael, Marco, and Startups at the Edge, otherwise known as M4Edge, the podcast about startups with technology that changes how the economy functions. We've decided to kick off this season with a deeper look at the meaning of our phrase, changing how the economy functions, specifically examining what you may have heard of as social entrepreneurship, which is the idea, actually now a movement, that entrepreneurial ventures should measure themselves not just by revenue or growth, but also by metrics that capture their broader impact on the social and natural environment, like, for example, emissions reductions. Social entrepreneurial ventures include for-profit companies and some not-for-profit organizations, but our interest is on the for-profit startup side. These are people and companies that have chosen a specific philosophy to attach to their business. It's part and parcel with, or maybe an outgrowth of, the impact investing movement. Impact investing takes many forms. It can be venture forms seeking out so-called double bottom line or even triple bottom line returns, meaning financial and social returns or financial and social and environmental returns. In fact, there is a venture form called DBL Ventures, double bottom line, one of whose portfolio companies we've had on the show, Zola Electric. DBL invested in another company you may have heard of, Tesla, which is probably the most high profile, but not the only proof point that impact investing is not charitable giving. Impact investing can also refer to the idea of investors screening for or against certain types of companies or activities. An example of a blunt version of these screens is the movement to force divestment from fossil fuel companies. A more institutional approach is the idea of ESG or ESGG investing. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and the additional G is sometimes added on for gender. ESG investors are typically mutual funds or financial companies with specific funds that invest in companies that are promoting those aims, or perhaps which are improving their own internal practices. There are many flavors of ESG and other flavors of impact investing. For instance, activist investors who own shares in companies as a means of proposing shareholder-driven reforms of company activity. How big is ESG? According to Morningstar, there are about 275 ESG open-end mutual funds and ETFs available in the US. And according to Deloitte, 75% of investors applied ESG principles to at least a quarter of their portfolios in 2019. Three quarters of investors are paying attention to ESG. Another sign of how far this idea has come? The incoming director of the National Economic Council, Brian Dees, most recently led BlackRock's ESG investing. In other words, one of the most prominent economist positions in the country is about to be inhabited 
by an ESG guy. Some of the more well-known impact VCs include DBL and Revolution's Rise of the Rest, whom we've also featured on M4Edge. There are many other examples, all with ambitious aims. Consider the Heed Fund, which invests in, quote, UN Sustainable Development Goals, focusing on solutions that can help industries become more ethical and sustainable in a shorter time frame. Or the Impact Engine, which invests in, quote, software companies driving improvements in economic empowerment, education, environmental sustainability, and health. Or Village Capital, an accelerator and VC whose mission is, quote, to reinvent the system to back the entrepreneurs of the future. Or maybe most simply, how about Better Ventures, which backs, quote, founders on a mission to build a better world. So for today's show, we've decided to delve into a few of these areas with the help of three guests. First, we're joined by Sonal Shah, who is the founding executive director of the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University. Sonal is so steeped in the world of impact that we asked her and the Beck Center to co-host this episode. Sonal interviews Lisa Green Hall, who is currently the impact chair at Apollo Global Management, but has held many roles in this space and is really one of the pioneers of the field. But we're technophiles here at M4Edge, and so Michael and I also interview Steve Tanner, the founder and CTO of EcoRobotics, a Swiss ag tech company whose mission is to develop, produce, and sell innovative farming machines that require low energy and that reduce the negative ecological impact of modern agriculture while keeping costs competitive. EcoRobotics is a certified socially beneficial company. Yes, that's a thing. They received what's called B Corp certification, which attests to their having met certain social and environmental performance standards. We close with Sonal leading a discussion with both Lisa and Steve. As is usually the case with M4Edge, there's a lot packed into this episode. We hope you find it as interesting as we do, as we believe that impact investing and social entrepreneurship are among the truly important trends in technology and investing generally. If you enjoy it, please pass the episode on to friends, post it on social media, and of course, write us a review on Apple Podcasts really helps. With that, enjoy the episode, welcome to our 2021 season, and thanks for being curious. Hi there, and welcome to M4Edge, podcast about startups that change how the economy functions. I'm Michael Leifman, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Marco Nunziata. Hi, Marco. Hey, Michael. Hi, everyone. We have a very special show today. Marco and I are joined by not one, but three guests, whom I'm going to introduce in just a minute. Changing how the economy functions, that's our show's angle. Today, we're going to examine that proposition refracted through the lens of social entrepreneurship or impact investing. There are several interrelated terms and concepts here, including ESG screening or environmental social governance screening, double bottom line, social return on investment, and more. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what those different terms mean, how they're interrelated today. So we've got three experts really immersed in this field from academics, investing, and of course, the startup world. Our first expert is also our guest co-host today, Sonal Shah. Sonal is the founding executive director of Georgetown University's BEEK Center, that's B-E-E-C-K, 
Center, which focuses on social impact and innovation. The Bake Center works on scaling innovations for positive impact, not just technology or business innovations, but also policy and political innovations. Sonal's resume includes stints in government, Wall Street, and Silicon Valley. A sample from her list of impressive credentials includes founding the White House Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation under President Obama, leading Google's technology initiative for civic voice and investing for impact, and developing the environmental strategy and clean tech investment strategy at Goldman Sachs. Sonal will be leading a discussion at the episode's end and also interviewing our first guest, Lisa Hall. Welcome, Sonal. It's great to be here. Thank you, Michael. So you can't have a conversation about impact investing or even do a Google search about it without coming across Lisa Greenhall. Lisa is a fellow at the Bake Center, but is also the impact chair of investing at Apollo Global Management. She was the managing director of impact investing at the Anthos Fund in Amsterdam. Uh, Lisa served as the CEO and president of Calvert Foundation from 2010 to 2013 following her tenure as head of the investment portfolio there for five years previous. Calvert is known as one of the pioneering organizations in impact investing, and much of that is due to Lisa's work there. Welcome, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. Welcome. And last but not least, we're joined by Steve Tanner. Steve is the founder and chief technology officer of EcoRobotics. That's robotics with an X at the end. EcoRobotics is an agriculture technology or ag tech startup based in Switzerland, whose tagline is technology for the environment. So there are several cool and noteworthy things about the company. Their tech is cool, um, including it's having one award after award. But I'll mention one facet that's most relevant to our conversation today, which is that Ico Robotics was certified as a B corporation last year. We'll explain what that means later in the episode. He holds a PhD in microtechnology, and before founding, Ico Robotics held several roles, including as the CEO of Arosha, which is an international nature conservation organization. Say that 10 times fast. Welcome, Steve. Hello. I'm happy to be here with you. Wonderful. Well, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sonal to get us going with her interview of Lisa. So take it away, Sonal. Michael, thank you so much. And thank you for uh, hosting this podcast. I think this is going to be such a fun conversation and, and really an interesting time to be talking about impact investing. As you mentioned, I am uh, joined here with uh, Lisa Hall, who is just a, not just a pioneer in the space of impact investing, but someone who, frankly, has been doing this uh, for a very long time and, more importantly, has sort of seen this movement grow. So, Lisa, it's so great to have you here. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I think is is important is, is maybe we should just do a little historical. What is impact investing? Because I think it's a term that um, there's ESG, there's impact investing, there's uh, conscious capital. There's so many terms that are being used today. Uh, would love to sort of uh, have your take on it and your historical perspective. Well, thank you so much, Sonal, for those very kind words. And it's like a pleasure and an honor for me uh, to be interviewed by you because you certainly have been one of the sheroes of the impact investing world. Um, in terms of what is impact investing, 
I think on a very simple level, it is investing for good, right? Investing in service to the common good. Uh, in the world of impact investing, we talk about very precise definitions around intentionality and the intention behind the investment, as well as measurability. Can you measure the impact? Uh, and there are many tools and frameworks that enable measurement of impact. Um, and then thirdly, are you getting a return? Because these are real investments. These are investments where you're getting a return of your capital, and in most cases, a return on your capital. So some type of interest income, or in the case of an equity investment, um, you're getting a dividend. And these three things are how we precisely define impact. But when we think about the evolution of impact, it's a relatively recent term that was coined less than 15 years ago. Um, that doesn't mean the practice and approach to investing that we call impact investing is new. It's actually been around for decades um, and comes in the form of investing in industries like affordable housing, education, health where you can see that there's a social benefit, that people and the planet benefit from these investments and that they are in service to some common good. Um, I'd also like to clarify that we use the word impact and you know, sometimes social scientists wanna debate if that is the right term because really what we're talking about are social outcomes. So another way to think about impact investing is outcomes investing, where you're seeking some type of specific outcome or benefit for the society or for the planet. Yeah, that's, I love that. I love that redefinition of impact investing to outcomes, because I, I know when um, Steve comes on, it'll be very much about how he's thinking about the technology and the outcomes that he is, uh, you know, he's foreseeing. Um, so let, let, can, if you don't mind, I'd love to dig into a couple of the, of the topics that you raised. One is just intentionality. When you say intentionality, you were at Calvert. How did you think about investing and what types of intentions? What does that mean, intentionality? Yeah. That, that is such a great question. And I will admit that when the industry or the field of impact investing started focusing on intentionality, I wasn't a fan. I, I argued, you know, why do we care if there is intent or not, if, if there is some type of positive impact being generated? Uh, my views on that have evolved significantly over time. And I am firmly committed to the need for intentionality in order for an investment to be an impact investment. And the intentionality is around setting objectives upfront that you are committed to over time through the entire life cycle of an investment, um, all the way through to the exit from that investment, that you are intentional about the impact that you're generating. And it matters so much because if you're not intentional, if you don't set those objectives upfront, if you're not committed over the long run, then it's very easy to abandon the impact, particularly if an investment could potentially be more profitable without the impact. It's easy along the course of the life cycle to say, well, the impact was important to me in the beginning, but not so much now. So I'm not going to you know, commit over the long run to those objectives. Whereas if you are intentional 
the intentionality carries with it a level of commitment around monitoring, tracking impact, being specific about measurability with very specific metrics that you keep track of over the entire course of your investment. And and Lisa, I think um, th- that that intentionality, you know, it's interesting. I used to have the same conversation uh, wh- whether that was uh, important at the beginning. And I'm with you. I think the evolution of thinking on this has been huge because it it forces you throughout the life cycle to be asking these questions um, and 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 thinking about why you're doing it. So so one of the questions that always comes up in impact investing is sort of how do you know you're sort of holding to the intentionality? You know, we sometimes define it as what are the metrics of success or what, how are you measuring impact? But how do you, if you're an organization, think about measuring towards the intentionality of what you're trying to do? And how would you think about it? And how did you think about it when you were at both at Anthos and at Calvert? Well, I think part of the, the intentionality and staying true to it is beginning with the end in mind, right? What are you trying to achieve, right? What is your goal? What is your objective? And, and I think in the early days of using the term impact investment, people often thought, well, if you're investing in an industry, a certain type of industry, then it automatically is impact. And what we've learned is that even when you're investing in education, there are a, a range of outcomes that can be uh, generated. And so being very clear about what you want to accomplish upfront is one way that you um, can commit to and be have integrity around intentionality. And, and I would say those objectives should be really specific key performance indicators. Um, and they should not just be output focused. I think, again, there's been an evolution here where in the beginning of using the term impact investing, people felt very comfortable measuring outputs and saying, let's say you're in education, measuring the number of students that have been served or the the number of curricula that has been delivered. In health, we would often, from an output standpoint, say, well, we wanna measure how many patients have been treated. And over time, what we've learned is that it's the outcomes that you really want to measure and track and monitor over time and that you should have metrics associated with outcomes. Outputs are important, but outcomes are even more important. So in the case of education, in the example that I used, yes, we care about how many students have been served, but we care more about did they learn anything? Because it's not contributing to society, it's not benefiting to society if you have a bunch of students being served that aren't learning, that that education is not translating to their ability to get a job or to increase wages. Similarly with health, yes, we care about the number of patients that have been served, but what we really care about is did they get better? And so you have to come up with metrics that measure, did they have improved health outcomes and not just whether they received a treatment? Um, So I think that that's a big piece of it. And, you know, definitely have seen an evolution over the years. I think You know, at Anthos, we were very proud of asking our investees for projections around impact. And and I remember when this first came up and I said, nobody else in the marketplace is asking for projections on impact for 10-year projections. And if we ask for this, then it's going to put us out of the market. And what we found when we began asking our investees 
for information that projected outcomes over time is that they they were excited about having this information as well. Because in the best impact businesses, the impact and the financial performance are integrated, right? They're very symbiotic. So if you are tracking or creating projections against which you're tracking, then that actually helps inform your business success as well. Um, and so I, you know, I think that you know it is a very realistic um, ambition that just as we have financial projections for businesses that we begin having impact projections for businesses that get tracked and monitored over time. And that's part of your intentionality as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, even though I don't run a business, you remember when 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 we were doing the Beck Center, I was like asking what we were trying to do, what kinds of students we wanted, what kinds of people we wanted engaged. It made a difference because you sort of apply your strategies differently based on sort of the, the, the metrics you sort of set for yourself. Because if you don't set those metrics, then you could easily just say number of students that were involved in the center was important, but not necessarily, um, not necessarily the types of students which we were looking for, which is specifically under graduate students um, across disciplines. So yeah, it's a, it's a great point about like sort of thinking about how you're going to measure to those metrics internally, not just always externally. So one of the biggest challenges that I hear in impact investing is um, how transparent do you have to be about those impact metrics? Do you have to put it out in the world? Do you have to just keep it internal? Um, if you're a fund, do you just want to sort of like have it for yourself or does the world need to know? So what's the, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah. Well, you won't be surprised to hear this, Sonal, because at the Beck Center, uh, I know being a fellow there that we're very focused on, on outcome um, and results. And so, I, you know, I think that any uh, performance results are relative. And so it is important to be as transparent as possible. Uh, that certainly tracking and, you know, producing and tracking metrics helps to inform your business operations and business strategy, uh, but that those metrics are also relative, right, to what's going on in the rest of the world. And so uh, it's about building an evidence base as well, because as we build evidence around um, theories of change, where we can actually show that an output translates to an outcome, that that will be useful to all impact investors. And so that the more transparent we can be, the better. Um, and you know, I think that there are standards and principles out there around transparency and reporting that should be followed. Um, in my current role, we're really proud to be signatories to uh, the IFC operating principles for impact management. Um, as well as the UN uh, principles for responsible investing. And I think these types of principles are really important to have as ways to guide what type of transparency we should have uh, on reporting. So, the, so I'm going to switch topics slightly here and say one of the big things that I think people say with impact investing, and especially since Steve's going to be coming on in a, in a, in a bit, is... Um, is, you know, can you be both profitable and doing good at the same time? Like this is a, this is like, you know, it's funny, it's now 15 or 20 years, but we're still having this debate and uh, would love your sort of take on it, especially as bigger and bigger players are coming into the impact investing space. Like, is it possible to do both good and do well at the same time? Yeah. And, and of course it's possible. I, I, 
You know, I think that this question does continue to be debated, but in, there are, in fact, industries where doing well and doing good, earning a profit and having a social benefit go hand in hand. Um, and, you know, there is a discomfort, I think, in in some uh, communities around this idea that you would make money off of serving underserved communities, right? That uh, making money from providing goods and services to poor people is somehow um, not a positive type of investing. Um, and in fact, what we see is that when the private market is not serving these communities, that they often don't get served at all. Um, and so, you know, really the, this idea that you can tailor services and goods to communities that have not had access is a really positive transition. And of course, there's a role for government, right? And there's a role for philanthropy in serving the common good. But the dollars that are available in the private sector so far outstrip the resources of philanthropy um, that we have to be able to draw on, on impact investing as well. And in fact, there are many types of um, good and benefit for society that have earned revenue. And those should be finance, right? The concept of finance to be able to provide capital upfront for um, a activity that requires a lot of capital to build affordable housing, for example, or build a hospital. Those are earned revenue types of opportunities that should be financed rather than paid for all at once. Um, and so impact investing allows us, enables the, the payment upfront that then gets repaid over time with revenue from uh, student income or, or patient income and in examples of education and health. Um, so I, you know, I, I think absolutely you can do well and do good. You can make a profit off of businesses that serve the common good and benefit the planet and people. You know, I'm going to sort of my one comment on this when people tell me this all the time is um, I always wonder if we are ever calculating all of the subsidies that are given to large companies, whether it's R&D investments or whether it's the tax benefits or tax credits that go to the oil and gas industry and other industries for exploration. Um, if we were to count all of those as subsidies, then we'd have to look at even new investments and saying, where are those subsidies coming from? Because it isn't that uh, large businesses, just because they're profitable, doesn't mean they're not getting subsidies. It means that uh, there's some other places where subsidies are coming in. And, and today's time is sort of a really interesting time with the coronavirus, is how much of the research was first seeded by the federal government that now the companies are actually building the vaccine and I give them credit for it. Like, frankly, it's it's good that they're they're getting it out there, but but a lot of that research was seeded by the federal government. Um, so it's interesting, like it's not, we're not disconnected in those worlds, but it's a, it's a fascinating. One last topic before we switch over, ESG. What does ESG mean in the marketplace? Um, you know, we, we sort of hear impact investing and ESG. On the impact investing side, we sort of talked about the types of investments made. Um, but there's this other term that's being used all the time, which is ESG. Just for the audience, just to understand, what is ESG? Yeah. So the, the acronym itself stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. 
um, ESG. And there's a long history of ESG investing, both in the US and even a longer history uh, in Europe um, and other parts of the world. Um, and it really is an approach to, to thinking about how companies operate, right? Regardless of the type of activity or business. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, uh, that we talk about in the space is that there are companies that would not traditionally, they're not considered impact companies because they're not having a net positive impact um, on the planet or the society. Oil and gas companies, for example, uh, many people would not want to have them in their portfolio because of the net negative impact on um, the planet and environment. However, even an oil and gas company can have good ESG because E, S, and G are around the practices, practices and operations of a business. And so in the area of governance, it's looking at things like, do you have board diversity, right? Do you have gender and racial diversity in your board? It's looking at, do you have strong you know, uh, practices around how often your board meets, what type of committees you have. There are a whole set of governance issues that can apply to any company, regardless of what type of impact that they're creating. The same is true on environment um, in looking at the type of practices. Does the company have a recycling activity as part of its business operations? And so you think about ESG as kind of a first step around uh, practices and business operations, whereas impact is much more intentional around net positive outcomes, right? Social or environmental outcomes. And so it's a continuum. And, you know, many companies start uh, with ESG and understanding the business practices and operations and making them as strong as they can around these three categories of environmental, social, and governance. And then over time, move to intentionality of really focusing on what the social and environmental outcome is um, for a company or uh, for a fund uh, as they look to invest in that fund. Um, so it is a continuum. I, you know, I would say I used to uh, think that I've had an evolution here as well, where I used to think, you know, ESG is totally separate from impact. And I don't think they're totally separate, right? And we should be demanding of our impact companies strong ESG practices as well. Um, but it is a continuum. And, um, you know, I'd love to point people to the Impact Management Project, which I think is such a helpful resource in thinking about these issues. They have a great construct around A, B, and C, thinking as an investor about how you want to consider the impact that your investments are having, uh, A, being avoiding no harm, which I think is historically how people have thought about this field of both ESG and impact, that it's really about negative screening and not investing in things that create harm for people and planet. B is really benefiting society, like benefiting a certain group of stakeholders. And then C is contributing to systems change. Um, and so each of those are kind of categories and types of ESG and impact investing. Um, and I encourage folks who want to learn more to go to both go to the Beck Center website, where there's a lot of information about outcomes um, based 
investing and performance-based investing. Um, and then also to check out the Impact Management Project website, which has a lot of information about impact measurement and the broader practice of impact management. Thanks, Lisa. That was a perfect setup for Steve and Michael and Marco to talk about B Corps and just sort of businesses and how they incorporate impact in. So we will be back soon uh, with the both of you, but I'm going to turn it over to Michael, Marco, and Steve. Thanks, Lisa. It's a great segue. And uh, Steve, welcome again. Welcome again on the show. And we are certainly going to talk about Eco uh, Robotics as a B Corporation and talk with you about the impact investing in ESG and what they mean for your business. But first, let's spend a bit of time at the beginning talking about your company, the technology and the business model. So from the name Ecorobotics, our astute listeners probably have a sense that there is a robot involved somewhere. Why don't you start by telling us what the robots do, your robot, and maybe also describe them a bit for us so we're not imagining a standard humanoid robot or one with... Uh, clearly bovine features or robot ops. Yes, so maybe to understand what, what we do, um, just a, a small uh, story uh, uh, of my uh, younger uh, years. <laughs> I grew up in a, in a family of farmers and uh, when I was young, uh, I was um, helping my, my father uh, to weed. Uh, this means to remove the the, the weeds of, of uh, the fields and it was quite a, a difficult task uh, done manually at the time it was at the moment where chemistry uh, uh, were, was uh, was coming and uh, so I kept this in, in memory uh, and uh, so then I grew up I, I became a, an engineer and then I, I I tried at the moment when I when seeing the the, the bad impact impact of, uh, of uh, society on the environment. I tried to, uh, to combine my, my skill of engineer with uh, having an impact uh, on better uh, caring for the environment. And I thought back at that experience of uh, weeding manually. And uh, I, I thought, why, why using robotics to do that? So this was the starting point. But of course, not human humanoid robots, but more uh, machinery. Uh, that can see, uh, recognize plants, and uh, act on individual plants uh, very accurately to do something. Uh, in, in that case, to, to, to apply herbicide just on the weeds, not everywhere, so resulting in, in massive uh, savings of herbicide and uh, a, a, a big impact on the, on the environment, because uh, now the problem of, of uh, of industrial agriculture is the amount of chemistry uh, we use to produce, and we, we need to change that. that. So that, that were, that's in a few words what we are doing at Ecorobotics. So uh, using technology and robots, uh, robotics technology to apply as little uh, chemistry as possible to, to make uh, grow uh, what we eat. Tell us a little bit about the, the robots themselves, or uh, maybe describe them for our audience so people understand what, what exactly you're talking about, their size, their, their dimensions, et cetera, and then we'll, we'll move on a bit to a little more of the, the technology and your business model, and then we'll talk about the, the social side. Yes, with pleasure. So we have two kinds of, of machines. So uh, 
first uh, we are uh, beginning uh, to 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 sell these machines so it's uh, it has been a long uh, a long way to to develop such a technology because it's quite complex to uh, to be able to 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 recognize the plants uh, with a, with a with a good rate uh, so we have two uh, different machines now so we have an autonomous this autonomous machine goes uh, who goes on on its own on the field and uh, so to to spray only the weeds and we have uh, another machine which is uh, which goes which goes behind the tractor, uh, and uh, it's a more traditional uh, machine using using exactly the same technology, but uh, with a human pilot. Uh, we, we we saw that uh, the acceptation of robotics of autonomous robots is quite challenging in agriculture. It's quite a conservative market, and, and uh, we decided to uh, to offer also uh, uh, the same technology but behind the tractor. And so these are these are sort of large um, table kind of machines. They're not. They don't look like uh, they're flat with wheels, right? They they don't look like um, no no science fiction. So so tell tell us when you say they're they're autonomous. How autonomous are they? You say they can recognize individual plants. Do they they plan their routes through the field? What what is the tech that is making them work? What how how much autonomy is there? For the autonomous machine, uh, they they drive they they drive autonomously and they are uh, powered by uh, solar panels. So the farmer will place the machine uh, on the field and then switch it on. And, well, of course, the the, the work has been uh, programmed and the the path has been programmed, but the machine will operate uh, on its own. While the other machine uh, behind the tractor, of course, the farmer will, will drive the tractor. Uh, the autonomous parts to recognize the weeds. Uh, well, the machine has been trained um, with uh, a lot of images, uh, trained to to identify uh, a lot of different plants. We we can recognize about uh, 50 different plants, and uh, we we tell just the program, okay, we want to spray this species or this species, and, uh, and not the others, and the, the, the machine does it uh, then on, on its own, and it's a uh, uh, it does it um, in real time. This means it, it recognizes and, and the second after it sprays. So it's it's really a, the action is done at the same moment. Now we don't need the cloud to, to do that. So you mentioned the issue of acceptance of the technology in the sector. So I'm wondering, are your customers mostly large agricultural conglomerates or also individual farmers? What is your customer base like? Yes. So. Uh, as I told you, we are just at the beginning of uh, commercialization, and we worked until now uh, with the test customers, uh, and we are targeting two uh, different customers: uh, individual individual farmers with a small to medium-sized farms, and uh, service providers. Uh, these are, uh, I would say, most of the time these are farmers, but they have uh, they have uh, equipment and they they offer a service to the other farmers. Uh, it can be a weeding service, harvesting service. Uh, in this case, we these these customers they will uh, use our machine to offer a service of high accuracy weeding to the other farmers who may not have the capability to equip with such a technology because it's it's a new so this means expensive technology for the moment. So to answer the question about the business model, so we sell we sell machines, but then after we also sell a, a license for uh, the software. Uh, of which is on the machine, uh, because the the recognition of the plant it's a, it's a an ongoing process, and every year we improve uh, our algorithm. This means there is a, a there is a fee that the farmer 
the license of the software so that he can also pay uh, for what he needs. He will uh, pay, for example, for, for uh, the, the sugar beet uh, license and not for the, the onions license because he has no onions. So he can really tailor um, the, the, the cost uh, of to, to what he needs. So the, 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 these are these recurrent costs, which are uh, also interesting for for uh, to fund uh, such a development. Uh, this means we have recurrent revenue that allow to to improve also the machinery, uh, especially the algorithm uh, of the machines. One more question before we move on to um, what it means to be a social entrepreneur. Um, so you're not the first guest that we've had on our show that's uh, from a company outside the U.S. Um, but you are our first guest from a Swiss company. And so tell us a little bit about the tech scene and the startup ecosystem in Switzerland. How how easy was it for you to raise capital or recruit talent as opposed to say, being in Silicon Valley or, or London or Berlin or Amsterdam? Yes, traditionally, the, the, the funding uh, landscape uh, is uh, much uh, more conservative in, in Europe. Huh? Uh, the, usually the, the, the volumes are lower, uh, but there is maybe um, a longer uh, term vision uh, for funding companies. Um, what I know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but what I know is that in the, U in the US, it's more, uh, uh, we give uh, maybe a few years for a company to, to, to reach success, but if they don't, um, sometimes everything is stopped. In, in Europe, it's more, uh, we take more time. We take more time, and uh, maybe the funding is less, but it, it, it lasts longer. Uh, so for us, the difficulty was, it was not to, to, to find uh, find money, but to, to then to find money to scale. It, it's more difficult in Europe. At the beginning, it's uh, you, you find you can find impact investing, um, but then you, when you you need a, a higher volume because you want to scale up, you want to scale your test, uh, your you want to validate your technology at a higher scale on different countries, then it costs a lot, and then it's it's more difficult, it's more challenging in in uh, in Switzerland especially. And let's switch gears and talk about the impact investing ESG aspect of your project, connecting to some of what we heard from Lisa. So your vision starts out with statements like, and I quote here, "We contribute to an agriculture that respects the environment." And your mission statement also includes the phrase uh, farming machines that require low energy and that reduce the negative ecological impact of modern agriculture. So tell us a bit more about uh, what you are aiming for. What is your intent? Uh, what outcomes you think uh, ecorobotics can achieve and how they should be measured? So the, the first impact is chemistry reduction. Uh, and it has uh, an impact. Uh, not uh, it's not uh, just a question of cost, but uh, the the chemistry, uh, the residues of the chemistry. You, you find it on on the whole uh, food chain. You find residue on your food. You find residue on the water, on the soil, and uh, it's not negligible. Uh, uh, today in Switzerland, we have a lot of problems with a uh, with the chemistry that was used 30 years ago or 25 years ago. Uh, and which is on the soil, and then which which goes out on the water springs. So it's a it's a it's a big problem. But maybe with 20, 30 years of delay, 
So we need to stop that. And uh, by using uh, 10 times less uh, chemistry, of course, there, we, there, there is a big impact on, on, on that kind of, uh, of danger, uh, of hazard. Uh, another problem also is uh, human health. Um, you know that when you eat uh, vegetables, which has been uh, treated by, with chemistry, you, you eat chemistry. Uh, and it's, uh, on the lifetime, it's a non-negligible amount of chemistry that we eat. And, uh, and some, are, uh, some may cause cancer. So there is a trend to reduce, to get rid of this chemistry. And, uh, but it's not easy because uh, the, 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 the agriculture system has been uh, designed around the chemistry for 30, 40 years. And it's not easy to get out. There are, of course, there are organic farmings, but it's not, not always the solution. So for us, the impact is really to reduce chemistry by a factor of 10. Uh, and uh, our machine allows already to, we, we already this year um, demonstrated this. Uh, by reaching a 90% of reduction in uh, in uh, in our first crops, so for us it's it's already a big impact to 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 reach this uh, this objective. You mentioned uh, a minute ago some of the differences in how startups get funding in Europe versus the states. Was was being a company that fit with that vision statement and with that mission statement. Um, did that help you get funding? Did it hurt? I mean, how did your how did your investors view your your mission as opposed to your tech? I think what what Lisa told before it's it, it's it's right. Uh, if you come with a, a value, an added value, which is not only economical, but you can show that you have an impact, uh, it facilitates investments uh, and. Uh, if we count everything, the cost of chemistry is huge today. The cost of human, uh, the human cost, the environmental cost of chemistry, of applying too many chemistry is huge. So for us, it, it, was, uh, it facilitated the, the fact to find, to find the funds to propose a solution that can solve a problem. And uh, even um, with uh, the chemistry makers, they, they know that their business will come to an end. We cannot continue like that. So they are looking for solutions. They are looking for investment to invest in new technologies that allow to reduce their business. <laughs> it seems crazy, but they know that they are at risk if they don't want, if they, if they refuse to change. It's like tobacco industry. Uh, you can close your eyes for uh, decades, but at the end, if you do nothing, you lose. So the, these industries, they know that they have to change. So impact is not just a nice story. It's a, uh, it's a need. It's a need to change. It's a need to, to, to change the game. And uh, if, you can, if you can transmit this message uh, in a good way, you, you, you attract investors. And for us, we, we, we saw it clearly. We attracted a lot of attention uh, on our technology, even if it's not easy. Uh, agriculture market is conservative, so it's 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 a challenging task. But so far, we, we saw the the traction of uh, proposing a, a solution to solve a real problem. And Steve, you've chosen to give a very explicit and specific signal of your mission as an impact player. That is, uh, last year, as Michael mentioned, you've gotten certified as a B corporation. 
Can you tell us what it means, why you decided to take this certification, and what actual concrete impact does it have on your operations? So for us, Big Up was, the, the goal was to belong to a family of, of entrepreneurs with the same vision and not be alone. And uh, for us, this was the main reason to, uh, to, um, uh, to be part of this, of this label. Uh, it was the, the effect of the group. And to, uh, also, if you, if you receive a label, uh, you are, if you are part of an ecosystem, it facilitates also uh, the, it attracts investors who are looking for that. It attracts also customers who are looking for uh, the added value. So for, for us, the motivation was to belong to something bigger than us, but with the same uh, vision, the same vision of, 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 uh, of bringing something more than, than just benefits, uh, money benefits, but some, bringing a transformation. That's excellent. Thanks for this. And with this, let's hand uh, the moderator role back to Sonal and bring Lisa back into the discussion. Marco, Michael, Steve, thank you for the great conversation. I, I, I have so many notes about eco-robotics that I'm, I'm sort of running out of room on this paper. So I'm going to sort of uh, uh, bring Lisa and both of you in together. And Steve, um, just a, a sort of a question, which I thought was so interesting in terms of um, what your business is doing. On one hand, you're sort of building the robotics. On the other hand, you've got this AI that can be very personalized. For each of the for each of the clients, um, which is which is so interesting as you're thinking about how you're mix, you know bringing in different types of technology. Um, did was that sort of a question for you? Was that something you thought of at the beginning, or was this something that has evolved as your own business model is evolving? Uh, yes, it, it, it evolved with the the experience we we, we got uh, by uh, testing our machine with a. Uh, with farmers also, better understanding the, the, the reality because at the beginning it was quite idealistic. Uh, so we learned a lot. Uh, we learned also the, the hard way uh, how uh, farmers work, how they, uh, what is the uh, economical possibility also because they are, it's, uh, they are under huge pressure. So you cannot, uh, <laughs> sometimes the, the possibilities, uh, financial possibilities are quite limited. So we need to be cautious about that. And yes, it evolved with uh, with the, the journey uh, during the journey, and um, then uh, what you say the, to, to tailor um, uh, solutions, AI solutions uh, with the customer, it's it, it has a limit. Huh? We try to to be as a, a, as a standard as possible. Um, uh, uh, it's hard to, to to really provide a customizable solution for every uh, every farmer. It, it, I would say it's not possible, but uh, at least. To be able to to provide a solution for a, a country or a region, because every region is different in terms of in terms of crop, of weeds, of uh, climate. So at that level, that's what we are looking for. Wow, very interesting, Lisa. One of the things that um, that Steve mentioned that I thought was sort of really interesting um, is that uh, European investors are looking at long term. Um, and, and, and I'm, you know, as you sort of watch the impact investing landscape globally, because you, you, you've been both in the U.S. and, and, and global, um, are you seeing more investors sort of coming in for the long term? Yes, I think that is a definite trend that there's more and more interest in long term investment product. 
Um, you know, I would say on, on the fixed income side, that's partly driven because that's the only place you can get yield right now is long-term or longer term. But I, but I think also in terms of being an equity investor, that, that investors see the way to create value is to be in it for the long run. Um, that when you're when you are driven by short-term return expectation, it leads to uh, decision making that is not necessarily um, it's not beneficial from a return standpoint, and certainly not beneficial from an impact standpoint. And you know, we we believe in my my current work at Apollo Global Management, we're very focused on the concept of collinearity. The idea that you can achieve both outsized financial returns um, alongside outsized impact returns or impact performance. And I think to really maximize your returns on both levels, that you have to be in it for the long run. And increasingly, investors see that and see the advantage of the, being invested uh, over longer terms. Yeah, and particularly with Steve's company, I find it interesting to think about this because as it looks like as they sort of get more data, they're going to get better at what kinds of chemicals are on these plants and, and how might they tailor it. Um, and, and, and just listening to him in this last question of asking whether, you know, should they make it regional? Should that be about crops? It's sort of a very interesting approach. And, and, and companies having the flexibility to be able to figure it out. So Steve, on that on that specific piece, are you when you look for your investors, are you asking those questions? Of, are you thinking about like, will we have the flexibility to figure this out? How do you think about it from a perspective of a company looking for investors? Um, in a, well, every domain has its own uh, specificity in, in agriculture. Um, it's, um, you have to, to, to work with the seasons. You cannot, uh, you have one one trial every year. We say uh, in the farmer's life, a farmer has 40 trials because there are 40 seasons. So you, you have to live with the nature and, and uh, it takes time. So, uh, but the, the investors investing in, in, in Actec, uh, serious investors, they, they know that. They, they, know, they know it will take time. So uh, it's a little bit different, uh, I would say, than, than in, in the standard technology uh, 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 topics, uh, and we, are, we, we were looking especially for Actec uh, funders uh, because we needed them. We needed, we needed the investors to understand the business uh, first to help us also to, to, to take good decisions, uh, to, to bring an added value. And you need to work with investors uh, specialized in, in their, their field. Otherwise, you, you, yeah, there is a chance of, of failure if you don't understand or you work with the wrong investors who have no uh, experience or no, they don't understand the, the, the domain. So for us, it was very important to, uh, to, to, uh, to work with um, the, the good investors uh, in Actec domain. Uh, yeah, so to answer your question, I, I hope I answered. Uh, so, so it's important that you're sort of looking specific types of investors who understand the long time frames. Um, Lisa, um, 
One of the things that Steve talked about was also B Corp and why they wanted to be a part of a larger community, that they weren't just a business looking at doing social impact, but that there was a larger piece of this. I know you've been involved in B Lab, B Corp for a long time. And was this sort of the intention that, you know, um, when when it was created to, to build that? Uh, what have you seen change or happen over the last, you know, decade or two decades? Yeah. Um, so the the B Corp movement is, is such an important movement in the, the world of impact investing. And in the early days, uh, and, and I, I don't want to speak for the founders, but I think the idea was that here was this novel way of categorizing a company that would enable investors to find impact opportunities, right? That this would be almost like a good housekeeping seal of approval that you knew if you were investing in a B4 uh, that that company was committed to and generating a positive impact um, on society and or on the planet. Um, and I think over time that this has really evolved into a community, a movement of thousands of benefit corporations um, that are, are truly seeking impact, but also lo looking to adopts best practices and business operations that are consistent with generating impact. And that they, that together as a community and as a movement, uh, B Corps are learning from each other how to adopt practices um, and that they are also kind of spreading the gospel around the, the performance benefit of being a B Corp, right? So that that B Corps are all about providing benefit and impact to society um, and to environment, but they're also a huge demonstration project as a group of companies around impact driving financial performance. Um, and so I think that that's been an important element of the growth of B Corps is that now there is this measurability around companies who have dedicated themselves and have even changed their corporate structure to look at benefits for all stakeholders, um, that those companies also generate positive returns. I, I do wanna say one quick thing about um, technology and, and how it can enable impact, because I think that your company, Steve, is such a great example of how innovation and technology can drive impact. And agriculture, of course, being so important to so many economies uh, around the world, particularly in emerging markets, you know, in some cases, 20% more of their GDP comes from agriculture. Um, and so such an important job generator and important to alleviating poverty in many parts of the world. And by enabling or using technology, you are enabling that impact in a way that is like so intriguing. And you know, we are, we are looking at in the platform that we're building at Apollo, an industry thematic that we call Industry 4.0, which is around how does technology, how does innovation enable impact? And I think people often hear technology company and they think that that's venture capital, it can't be late stage, and they think that that's all commercial. There's no element of it that could be impact. And you are showing through your company that very much a technology company can be for the long run and can enable impact for 
both people and the planet. Yes, it, we we still have to uh, to, to prove it with a <laughs> with a success in sales. Huh? We are at the beginning, so uh, of course it's. Um, I would not uh, dare to say that we already succeeded, but we, we are. Uh, I, I think the, the the strategic way is to. To, to bring at the same time an impact and economical advantage. If you don't have an economical advantage, especially for farmers, they, they just not they will not switch to it unless they are forced. So for us, it was to identify um, which activity we can uh, at the same time improve, uh, get an impact, have an impact, and then reduce the cost. And uh, uh, using less chemical uh, was. Uh, was a good uh, example because chemistry is expensive, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, no, I think this is, that's such a great point, Steve, in terms of um, A, needing to prove the business model, but also that, that the, the not just to the business community, but to the farmers themselves <laughs> and to making sure that they're getting the greatest value. But I will say, as we move to 9 billion people on the planet, um, how how we do farming and how we do productivity in that and, and what that means for our water supply is only going to become more important uh, as, we, as we move forward. So one last question for both of you. Um, as, as you sort of, um, Steve, I'm going to start with you. As you sort of look at your company, as you sort of grow your company, what are the... What what are the intentional metrics you're going to be looking for in, in making sure that you sort of, even at scale, you're sort of measuring too? It's again, a reduction of herbicide. Uh, we target 90% of reduction and uh, it scales up uh, easily. So if you, if you sell uh, 1,000 machines and you have 90% of reduction, you can easily calculate the, the amount of herbicide that you have saved. Here uh, today in the world, we are spreading three millions of ton of of poison of poison every year. So if you divide it by ten, it has a huge impact on the on the on the water on the on the food. So for us, the the, the simplest metric is that, and we can track it very easily. Huh? It's uh, we can measure it directly on 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 one machine, and then it scales easily. Yeah, and do you see the the big companies, especially these herbicide companies, coming uh, coming at you in terms of um, you know they have an interest, they have to increase their sales. Of course, and we are not the only one. Uh, there, there, there was competition, uh, but um, they, they, they will. In fact, the value uh, will pass from the molecule to the to the service to the to the AI to the intelligence. So, so the the challenge is to keep for this, this company to keep the the, the value. Uh, and to offer uh, to the farmer an advantage also, uh, which can be a uh, uh, health advantage or a better work condition or a lower cost. So, of course, they will need to, 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 to share the, the, the cake, <laughs> to, to give away maybe some, some of their benefits. But if they don't do it, they, they will lose everything. Yeah a great point. Um, Lisa, one final question for you. And this is sort of um, trying to merge sort of the impact investing and the ESG portion of this conversation a little bit. You know, there's large companies, and as we were talking to Steve about the about sort of herbicide companies, but you could also see this in the oil and gas field, right? Like there's going to be large companies that are in oil and gas, but they're 
also investing in clean energy and clean technology. How do you merge these two worlds where change is coming, but at the same time, you have to sort of um, manage to the change. There's still many people in jobs. There's still the, there's the link to the jobs piece that has to, there's the environment piece and then there's the jobs piece. And how do you see that sort of playing out from at, at a scale perspective? Yeah. So change is coming and you can see many industries in transition. And I think one way to think about investing in impact where an industry or a company for that matter may be in transition is that impact investors can be accelerants, right? They can accelerate change that is already underway. And so I do think it's very important for impact investors to uh, look at where there are opportunities for impact turnaround. And it's one of the things that we've talked about a lot internally um, in creating and building this impact platform at Apollo is the idea of an impact turnaround. That in fact, that you might have a greater, uh, dare I say, more impactful influence by taking a company that's doing a little bit of social benefit for um, the planet and for people and maximizing on that aspect of the, the company's business. Um, and so that we should not, you know, be purists in this world and turn our heads um, around efforts where there is a real transition underway to make the company more impactful. And that particularly when you're talking about scale, um, that taking a small division of a company um, that is doing something impactful <clears throat> around the environment um, or around some type of social practice and scaling that can have tremendous benefit for society. And so that we should be supportive of those efforts. Shareholder activism is also another way uh, to promote and support transitions, whether it be in um, oil and gas or other types of industries where the company is in the process of moving their activities towards much more impactful outcomes. Um, so I'm, I'm really supportive of that and think that we as impact investors have to be very broad-minded about opportunities if we are ever gonna get to scale as a investment approach. Um, and that the key really is measuring and setting objectives for net positive impact that incorporate externalities, negative and positive. And that in fact, uh, as Claire Miller, one of my other heroes in the impact investing world is famous for saying, it's all impact investing, right? It's just a matter of what kind of impact are you having? And to know what kind of impact you're having, you have to measure it and track it. Um, and I think that, you know, we are all as a, as a field, the field of finance is uh, headed in the right direction, right? Very directionally on course toward more and more uh, positive and net positive impact being created in the world. Amen to that. And thank you, Sonal, for helping us to, uh, to have this great conversation. Thanks for co-hosting this with us. And uh, yeah, looking forward to other, other good, good conversations in 2021. Thank you for the invitation, man. Thanks for, for joining us, Steve. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. My pleasure. It's been such a privilege and treat. Uh, thank you guys for including me.